Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, the first chapter of the book of Acts. We'll read this passage and then a brief section in the third chapter of Colossians. Acts chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. The former treatise I made, O Theophilus, concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was received up, after that he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing unto them by the space of forty days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, said he, you heard from me. For John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. They, therefore, when they were come together, asked him, saying, Lord, do you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has set within his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were looking steadfastly into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was received up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you beheld him going into heaven. Now turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Verse 1, if then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are upon the earth, for you died And your life is hid with Christ 
in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, then shall you also with him be manifested in glory. Now again, please join me as we bow together and ask the Lord to make his word plain to our hearts and applied to our lives. Let us pray. Our Father, we are unable to pull together even our own humanity so as to see these things and to declare them as they ought to be seen and declared. Unless, O Lord, you send your Spirit and you, the Holy Spirit, give us help from heaven, we will make a mess of your truth. We ask you, Lord, to come now and help us as we open up this vital subject. Give us light from heaven. Give us sight to see it and understand it. And detune our hearts not only to comprehend what is going to happen, but to be prepared for it in obedience. O Lord, give grace now by your Spirit to those of us who do not deserve another good thing from you. Receive our thanks that we have these things this morning to contemplate rather than the things that are making men's hearts fail them for fear. We thank you for your word. Now teach it to us, we pray, in mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. No doubt many this morning around this country and perhaps in many other places in the world who hold a particular perspective and viewpoint regarding the history of the world and the purpose of God are preaching on the subject of Christ's return. I would be surprised if many pulpits two days before the United Nations deadline for Saddam Hussein to to get out of or to begin to get out of Kuwait I would be surprised if many preachers aren't dealing with the subject of last things, eschatology, the the future of the world, the coming of Christ, the end of the world, the great day that many have thought about and preached about much. Now, some who, in fact, many in our day hold the perspective that uh, the key to understanding the timing of Christ's return to the earth is the Middle East. Israel and the countries around it, there are many who are looking for a person, an individual, a man to rise up in our generation whom they see as the fulfillment of the biblical prophecy regarding Antichrist, the man of sin, and or the beast of the book of Revelation. There are those there, no doubt, who today will be declaring to their people that Now there is a new interpretation of the Antichrist and he's located in Baghdad and it's none other than Saddam Hussein and you could find several arguments to turn your mind in that direction. Without buying what I'm about to say, listen to a potential argument. This is a, a Muslim. He worships a God who is presented to us by means of a false prophet. He will declare himself at one time to be equivalent to Nebuchadnezzar, whom the whole world ought to worship. He's already said that he is the Nebuchadnezzar of the modern world, and it is his destiny to rule the world. 
Much of the reason for our own nation's military response to Saddam Hussein has been his statements both in public and in private for many years that he wants to rule all the Middle East, plans to take all of it for himself, plans to control the price you pay for every nickel of oil that you ever buy. He has not intended to stop at Kuwait, but he intends ultimately to wipe out Israel and to establish an Islamic state throughout the known world as far as he can get it. And tell me that he will not be able to do something with some strength with that if he has the oil that most of the Western world depends upon. Some would say, therefore, that here we have a man who is supported by the false prophet, who's going to have control of the food and oil and economy of the world. And if you don't worship his God, you're not going to be able to eat or buy oil. And they would go straight to several of the prophecies of the Old and the New Testament and have plenty of verses that would feed into that. I do not believe he's the Antichrist. If he turns out to be, I'll publicly say I was wrong. But it is feasible that many could come to that conclusion. Some who a few years back said Henry Kissinger would be the Antichrist. Some who before that knew it was Hitler. Others Mussolini. Others no telling how many they've named in the last ten years. One famous popular eschatology teacher who publishes books for a living and travels in the prophecy circuits and is greatly popular... Uh, has changed his position several times since his first printing, has had to have reprints to correct his errors because of his confident and bold assertions. Well, I'm not saying all this in order to tell you that what is going on in the Middle East has nothing to do with the plan of God for history, nor has no relation to the coming of Christ, but to tell you that many people no doubt now are thinking about the Lord Jesus and his return who might not have been before last August or before the saber-rattling began to be louder. Well, it's not the primary reason I'm preaching it this morning, and yet it does seem that it would be a timely situation in which to consider this biblical doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. Now let me introduce this series of messages by stating something of a wise man's attitude or what it ought to be concerning this study. And this morning's sermon, by definition, has to be introductory largely. Bear with me as I open up the subject to you today. What is a wise man's attitude toward this study? Well, there are only three things that I've listed. We could list many more. But first, a wise man should possess the historically informed recognition that our conclusions regarding this subject cannot finally rest upon the views of the men who have held them. He should possess the historically informed recognition that our conclusions regarding this subject cannot finally rest upon the views of the men that held them. In short, we can't form our convictions because good men whom, respect, whom we respected hold a certain view. The final resting place of our confident assertions must not be that so-and-so believed it or so-and-so preached it. Though dangerous and usually foolish to hold opinions never before heard in the church, we cannot form our views merely from the confidence that righteous men in the past and learned men have held opinions. It's dangerous to form an opinion you've never heard of before. 
it's usually foolish. Novelty is not orthodoxy ordinarily. If nobody in the history of the church ever held a particular opinion about the second coming, you better not be the first to assert it. Some in our day have done so, and they will destroy themselves in their pride. On the other hand, however, we must not depend upon the fact that many good men held an opinion in order to believe it. The reason we believe it cannot finally be that good men believed it. That is not our authority. I could be simplistic. We must be convinced the Bible teaches it. Even though we consult good men and would never form our final opinion without being humble enough to be taught by proven and wiser men and older men than we, we must not in the final analysis rest our conviction because on the fact that they held it. Widely respected and godly scholars and preachers have differed drastically in their interpretation of biblical prophecy. From Irenaeus to Augustine and the church fathers, from John Owen to Thomas Goodwin among the Puritans, from B.B. Warfield to uh, George Eldon Ladd to John Murray and modern uh, theologians, and including some holy men who have followed the novelties of the dispensational movement, there are clearly divergent opinions among true men. From Jonathan Edwards to Horatius and Andrew Bonar, wide perspectives among holy men who love Jesus and believe the Bible on this subject. Many believers have adopted a millennial view, and if you're not familiar with these terms, the millennium is that reference to a thousand years that is seen in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Um, and those that hold millennial views hold a differing views regarding what that thousand years means as it's written in the Apocalypse of John. Many believers have adapted or adopted a millennial view mainly because the preacher who led them to Christ held that view. How could we question a viewpoint which comes from such a heart as the one who first gave us the gospel? Others have assumed their opinion was correct because it was included in the Schofield Reference Bible, the Bible edition used by much of modern fundamentalism. These men believe the Bible. These men believe it's all of God. These men love souls. They're mission-minded. They're evangelistic. They're warm-hearted. It must be true. And to question their opinion has been thought by many to be dangerous. Some of us were taught in our youth by our beloved pastors that anyone holding a different view from Schofield is suspect at best and probably a liberal who denies biblical inspiration. I heard those with my ears. That if you didn't use a Schofield Bible, you were not orthodox. And if you didn't believe not only what was above the line, but below the line in Dr. Schofield's editorial notes, you would be wrong and a liberal. Some have equated their view of eschatology with Christian orthodoxy and have made it a test of fellowship. There are members in this church who were removed from the fellowship of their previous connections because of their views of eschatology. They were supported as missionaries, even though they changed their opinions of theology, but ultimately their eschatology got them in trouble. Makes it hard to be in a warm-hearted biblical church hearing good men preach who then say, if you don't hold this opinion about the return of Christ, you're not orthodox, you're liberal. It's hard for a young Christian to deal with that. And if there are a lot of scripture 
verse is quoted and expounded, it becomes even more difficult to deal with it. And then if that young Christian leaves that church and goes another place and a preacher preaches a different approach, it's difficult not to assume that he must not know his Bible. He may not believe his Bible or we wish we could help him with some of the tracts and literature that he no doubt has never read. This misinformed opinion dies hard. But for some of us, it did die when we met warm-hearted, Bible-believing, mission-minded men who saw it differently from what we were taught in our youth. Simply put, an interpretation is not proven by its promoters. Good men differ, and at least, therefore, some of them have to be wrong. Because they're good men doesn't bind the conscience to believe the opinion. Not all sincere men are preaching Bible doctrine when they say they are preaching Bible doctrine. And just because a man says, we don't believe theologians, we believe the Bible, that does not necessarily mean he understands what he believes. Or whereof he speaks. A wise man needs to possess the historically informed recognition that our conclusions regarding this subject cannot finally rest upon the views of men who've held them. Second, the wise man should conduct himself within the biblically directed context of a humble and gracious heart. He should conduct himself within the biblically directed context of a humble and gracious heart. It would grieve your elders. It would greatly concern us. If you take what we teach on this subject out of this place and begin to browbeat your other Christian friends with it. And to begin to hold it up as the only possible orthodoxy and begin to strut around arrogantly, matching up yours with theirs, and determining who are the enlightened Christians versus who are the ignorant ones. Brethren, you have enough experience from those that have looked down on you because of some of the things you hear preached here and believe for you to turn out and be just like them. Not only do you believe differently, you ought to have a different kind of heart. The wise man will. In 1 Corinthians 8, we're told by the Apostle Paul, if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows not yet as he ought to know. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we hear that love believes all things, does not vaunt itself, and does not behave itself unseemly. Knowledge puffs up. Love humbles. And love has a trusting disposition. And does not stir up strife every time it feels that it needs to. We mustn't write men off when they differ sincerely, but conduct themselves honorably. Honorable men of God will differ from us and our opinions. We don't write them off. We must have a gracious disposition for them. That does not mean we have to agree. It doesn't mean we have to pretend we agree. But it does mean that in the final analysis, we can't make our opinion of eschatology, the orthodox acceptance of Christ, and the basis for church membership, and our attitude of love and respect for other good men. 
it's helpful, it, it's easier for me to teach this principle than perhaps it might be for some because I've hold, held almost every opinion that I now reject. So how could I ever look down my nose at somebody who holds one that I used to hold? If I'm correct in where I stand now, then all that he needs is to learn what I've learned since I held his opinion. He doesn't need me to judge him as some inferior unless I'm prepared to admit to him that when I held his opinion, it wasn't because I was inferior, because I'm different. Don't write men off when they sincerely differ as long as they live honorably. Now, brethren, if their spirit is not humble and gracious, if they shut you out because of your differing opinion, or if they don't allow you to ask sincere questions about this issue, then I'm not suggesting that you can maintain very close fellowship. Sometimes you have no choice but to separate from some with attitudes like that. But not because of the opinion. There are doctrines without which you cannot be in this church. But this is not one of them. The details that we work out in eschatology are not placed upon your conscience as binding upon you. Some of the principles are as they grow out of the doctrine of salvation. But we must be humble and gracious in approaching other men. In keeping with that, we must not assume... That we are ever ready to make the final definitive chart of all future world events. I have enough fleshly fear that I don't want to be proved a fool. So I'm not going to tell you who the Antichrist is going to be. I think I know who it is. I don't think he's going to come later. I think he's already come. But that's my opinion. But I'm not going to make that the binding final def definitive thing and write it in a chart and publish it. I don't want to have to come back 15 years and have my book undone. What fools some men have proven to be in naming the Antichrist and setting dates for the return of the Savior. I got a thing in the mail two weeks ago telling me that it's going to be next year. It's a tract that's being passed out all over the place. And they've got their dates all worked out from the Bible. And if you don't believe it, then you don't believe the Bible. Be humble, be gracious. Third, the wise man should take seriously our Lord's injunction to love God with all our minds and therefore to search the scriptures for light on this difficult subject. The wise man should take seriously our Lord's injunction to love God with all our minds. And therefore, to search the scriptures for light on this difficult subject. Ladies, do not depend on your husband to figure all this out and tell you in short form and you learn it. That's not right. That's lazy and it's sin. You're to love the Lord the, your God with all your mind. Learn from him. Learn with him. But learn and open your own Bible and read it and search it. Don't say, well, nobody knows since good men have erred, how am I going to figure out? Ignorance and withdrawal are not the solution to our confusion. All scripture is profitable. There's no scripture that's not profitable. Therefore, you ought to study it. Don't say, well, I'm not going to read the Revelation. It just confuses me. How can it confuse you if you don't read it? How can something you've never read confuse you? Read it. Learn from it. If the Lord Jesus wanted his church to be in utter darkness on this issue... Why the extensive treatment of this subject in the scripture? 
Our perpetual communion ordinance, the Lord's Supper, stirs our memory of and our thought of the second coming every time we take it. We're forced to think of it and reckon with it and deal with it and contemplate it every time we gather for communion. Where we stand with God on the day of Christ's return to the earth determines where and how we spend eternity. It is in our vital interest to familiarize ourselves with what the Bible teaches of that great day and in the light of that teaching to prepare to meet God. So the wise men will conduct themselves with an attitude that's historically informed, recognizing you can't form your opinion simply because good men have held it. The wise man will conduct himself within the biblically directed context of a humble and gracious heart. And he should take seriously his Lord's injunction to love God with all his heart and mind and to search the scriptures regarding this subject. Now, having said all that by way of clarification and disclaimer, let me open up to you my intention for this series. And I do reserve the right to adjust this outline as we go along. The voluminous material that I'm trying to study in preparation for this means that I may discover some things that are needed later on that I have to include that I at this stage have not read yet and haven't concluded. But here's my purpose and intent. First, to say something today about the nature of the second coming of Christ and the purpose for his coming again. And then later, to declare some of the significant realities that are connected with his coming and then some of the vital implications growing out of those realities. And finally, to speak to you regarding the time of his coming and help you to think through this matter of when's Jesus coming? How can we know? Can we know? If we can know, when's it going to be? Are there clues? First of all, this morning, let me consider with you the nature of the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And there are three things I want to say as to the nature of it so as to clarify in our minds what we're talking about. In the first place, the coming of Jesus Christ will be supernatural. Supernatural. In other words, God's going to intervene directly in history. There's going to be something happen that does not fit nature. Just as he left and defied gravity, so his return will defy all sorts of the laws of nature. God himself in human history, in time and space, intervening in a way that everyone will know what's happening when it happens. Supernatural. A cataclysmic upheaval of the existing creation will accompany His coming. The Bible speaks of travail in the world, like the earth and the cosmos itself, giving birth. Something's going to happen drastic. Something cataclysmic. Something that uh, man cannot figure and reproduce and predict and control. In Hebrews chapter 12, a passage is helpful to see something of what God's going to do in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it with me, if you will. <coughs> Hebrews twelve twenty-five. Now, the burden of the writer and the writing of the book of Hebrews is Jewish 
Christians, converts, people who are Jews who have become Christians, who are being sorely tempted, and some who are falling to the temptation to become disillusioned with the ministry and religion and kingdom of Christ and the church, and to turn back to Judaism because of its carnal elements, its visible sacrifices, its preferred present tense realities, because they can't see clearly by faith and lay hold firmly on hope that has not yet been revealed. And they cannot therefore endure in gospel principles. That's the great burden of the book of Hebrews. And he comes to this great concluding section of the epistle and appeals to the reader and to the hearer in verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they, and he's speaking of Old Testament Israel, escaped not when they refused him that warned them on earth, much more shall we not escape who turn away from him that warns from heaven. He has spoken of <coughs> Moses and a mountain that could be touched and the uh, carnal ordinances of Moses. And when Moses, as God's mouthpiece, warned the children, they didn't listen. God judged them and punished them and destroyed them. If they didn't escape, who heard, who didn't hear him who warned on earth, how not, shall we escape who turn away from him that warns from heaven? Whose voice then, and he's speaking of God's voice, remember, shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken. And that word shaken literally means shakable. As of things that have been made, so that those things which are not shaken or shakable may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace, etc. In other words, God, sometime in the future is going to shake not just the world, but the whole universe, the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake them with the result that the only thing left after he's shaken them will be things that cannot be shaken. He's going to redo the material order. Cataclysmic things are going to happen when Jesus comes from heaven. He's not going to show up in a business suit in downtown Manhattan and begin to publish his presence through materials in the newspaper. That's why he says, don't hear. If somebody says, lo, there is Christ. Lo, there is Christ. Don't go. The coming of Christ is not going to be like that. It's not going to be a gradual instruction of his people as the Jehovah's Witnesses have taught that he did come back in the 1800s. And he was going to return and fix it all in 1914. And when 1914 came and went and it didn't happen, they said, well, we've got to re see what happened. When he came, the world's proved not to be ready. So he's now living in hiding, waiting for the, us to be ready and have truly repentant hearts. They've also had to change their uh, future predictions three or four times since then. No, no. What the reason they have had to change their predictions is that he hasn't come back yet. He's not in hiding. He hasn't sneaked into the world and waiting for us to be ready. Brethren, if he waits for that, he'll never be able to come. He's going to come like lightning. As the lightning which flashes in one part of the sky and appears in the other. That's the way Jesus is coming. And it's going to be cataclysmic. 
and the whole universe is going to undergo a changing by the power of the living God and then every eye and every tongue and every proud heart and every ear and every mistaken sinner is going to find out God was real and he was God and all this stuff is passed away. Then your pleasures are going to disappear. Then all the entertainment is gone. All the things that you refuse to give up now will be gone because it will shake and disappear. That which is shakable, God's going to rattle it and remove it. Only that which is unshakable, eternal, spiritual, godly will stay. Cataclysmic is supernatural. But second, the nature of the coming of Christ is not only supernatural, it's bodily and visible. The Lord will return in his body. Visibly, turn to Matthew chapter 24. Verse 25, Matthew 24. Behold, I've told you beforehand. If therefore they shall say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, go not forth. Behold, he's in the inner chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning comes forth from the east and is seen even unto the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, brethren, that isn't, he doesn't mean something uh, that will tell us the Son of Man is going to be coming pretty soon. Not some separate sign like a picture of a cross in the clouds. He means the Son of Man himself is the sign. The, te- the, the language of the text means the sign which is the Son of Man in heaven. That's when he'll appear. And then when he appears shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in our atmosphere. Just as he left and was received in the clouds from their view, he will reappear and will be seen with power and great glory. And then in verse 37, as it were the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. In those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, till the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Then shall two men be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women shall be grinding at the meal. One is taken and one is left. Watch therefore, for you know not on what day your Lord comes. And then verse 44, therefore be you also ready, for in an hour that you think not the Son of Man comes. Then in Revelation 1-7, without turning, let me recite it to you. They shall see him on the clouds of heaven, and they shall look on him whom they pierced. They will see the bodily marks of the suffering Christ. The Lamb of God on the throne of heaven with the 
wounds in his feet and in his side and in his hands and on his brow, inflicted by his people who rejected him, they shall look on the pierced one. They'll see him in bodily form, this same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And interestingly, the name used there is Jesus, that name affiliated with his incarnation, his bodily self. The Lord Jesus himself in the body will return visibly from heaven and the whole world will see him. You say, well, I don't understand that. How can everybody see him? The globe is round. The only reason I even brought that in was not to cause you to think about it, but because I know the devil would have later. Well, brethren, let me ask you this. How did you get here? I didn't mean by car this morning. How did you get into the world? You tell me how. Out of nothing, you came. Oh, no, Pastor, I, I, that was not nothing. I was, uh, I was a seed in my father's body, and I was an egg in my mother's body, and they got together, and here I am. Well, where did those come from? And we can trace it back, and to cut the story short, we can go back to the dust of the earth. From dust you were. Where did that come from? Brethren, dust is not eternal. God is. Dust is created. It came from God. How did he do it? And how can he take dust and form it into you? With your brain and your thoughts and your feelings. How did all that come to be? I don't understand that. But not for a moment do I fail to go to the table to eat because it doesn't make sense that there's a body here that needs it. You tell me how there is a universe and I'll tell you how Jesus will be seen by everybody. How are the dead going to be raised? Those that have been eaten by fish because they sank in a boat. Not just one fish, but a lot of fish. And the fish are gone now. And the fish are dead. How's the re- Where's God going to get all the body parts back to go? Oh, brethren, where did he get them when he started? What fools we are even to ask how God can do something. You see, the fundamental issue there is, is God God? Once you get that settled, the rest is not a problem. It's the rationalist of our generation who stumbles purposely over this kind of thing. Where is the promise of his coming, the scoffer will say in the latter days. Because there's been a delay, apparently. And then they'll do something. They'll say, see, all things continue on the way they have since the fathers fell asleep. They're going to interject their scientific knowledge. They're going to look in rock strata and find evidence. Now, their evidence will contradict itself, but they will hush that up. And if a Christian questions it, they will poo-poo his Christianity and say, you can't possibly be objective and scientific because you believe this superstition. They will say that quoting the scientists of the Soviet Union who send people to Siberia because of their Christian insanity. One friend of ours, a, a relative of one of our members, has recently lost a great award and a great privilege of publishing because his scientist mentor has found out he's a Christian and says there's no way we can give public profile to a scientist who believes such garbage. Those are my words, but that's the effect. A Christian can't possibly be a good scientist. Although the guy's work is impeccable, 
They were about to give him the award, and the man found out he's a Christian. That ended it. Nothing like open-mindedness, empirical thinking, test tube reality, is there? That's science. But the Bible calls it science, falsely so-called. Knowledge which is puffed up, but not according to truth. Brethren, I'm not ashamed to say to you, much of God's truth is going to contradict the scientists. And much of it's going to contradict your textbook, and some of it's going to contradict your logic, and some of it's going to force you to take a faith jump and believe God's word when it doesn't make sense to your mind. Now let's get that settled. I did not say the Christian faith is unreasonable, but it is not reasonable to a man who doesn't have it. It's only reasonable to faith. Don't be ashamed of that and don't try to make the Bible make sense to the unbeliever. That's a part of his problem. The unbeliever can't make sense of this. So I say to you this morning, who look at me and say, look, you're throwing out a bunch of religious nonsense. I'd rather go back to the firm confidence I have in my textbook. My dear friend, they have revised your textbook so many times now that if your confidence rests on that, you have nothing. You know the Big Bang Theory has now blown up in the face, don't you? You're aware of that. That recently we've been told that the majority of the secular atheist scientists have chunked that. Well, when are they going to change the textbook? Because they're still in the the libraries of your school. When are they going to go tell the fourth grader that this isn't true? We lied! We, in our brilliant scientific investigatory logical minds, asserted something as fact without having all the evidence. And when a Christian said, at least call it a theory, we said, don't meddle with science. That's that's not your business. Leave it to us experts. Professing to be wise, they became fools. All I'm telling you is that Jesus is coming bodily and everybody's going to see him. And the reason I'm telling you that is because God's word says it. Third, the coming of Jesus Christ will be sudden. I'm going to, you read the passage in Matthew 24. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The reason I'm telling you that it's going to be sudden is because whatever prophetic opinion you hold, whatever millennial view you adopt, whatever you decide to believe about the coming of Christ and the concomitance of it, you'd better be certain that you understand that you're not going to have time to get ready for it before he shows up. The day you decide that you know he's coming is the day he's here. I would spare you from the delusion that you're going to have some period of time to get ready for his return after you're certain when it's going to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the apostle says, But concerning the times and the seasons, in verse 1, Brethren, you've no need that ought be written to you, For yourselves know perfectly, know fully, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The word so, used often by Paul, means in this manner. Same way he uses it in Romans 11, and so all Israel will be saved, in this manner. That the day of the Lord so comes. How does it come? What kind of day is it? Like a thief in the night. Now, how does a thief in the night come? I've never, I don't know of many thieves in the night who come down the street with their rattling car, park out in front, 
pull into the driveway, keep the light shining, get out, slam the doors, go up to the front, press the doorbell, and announce, thief, come in. I make that ludicrous, not on purpose, but that's the picture and imagery the apostle wants us to think. It's like a thief who comes in the night because folks are not awake. Folks aren't thinking of a thief coming. It's his best chance to get in. He has no intention of ever anybody knowing he's coming. In fact, if he can have it his way, they won't even know he's been there. In and out with the loot, no evidence except the loot gone. He certainly has no desire or thought of anybody being able to look outside and say, Oh, thief in the alley, get ready. He plans to rob you without you having any advance notice. The Lord Jesus coming will be like that. He will come with no advance special notice. Other than what he said that he's coming. And he's coming suddenly. For yourselves know perfectly that's going to happen. Look at verse 3. When they are saying peace and safety, then, right then, while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like travail upon a woman with child. And they shall in no wise escape. Now, what does he say? Well... I have a theory about this. I think that what he's saying is that the Lord Jesus is going to come and there are going to be certain things happen that may not all happen in an instant. It's like travail and childbirth. The birth itself takes a process, a little, a short process, but it's, there's a little time frame here where things develop. However, once travail starts, it's over. It's, there's no escape. Once the baby says, I'm coming into the world, he's coming into the world. Several of us have learned that firsthand. Some of us by observation and others by personal experience. But you know what it's like. And they tell these... When it's time for the baby to be born, the baby's going to be here. And once travail starts, a woman in travail, there's no escape. Periodically, increasing frequency, increasing pressure and difficulty, birth is on the way. It's not long. It seems like a long time because of the horror and the terror and the pain and all, but it's not long. But the travail starts, no warning about travail. Walking in a shopping center, talking about the car. Travail. Honey. So it happened to us in one of our four. Lying in the bed asleep at four in the morning. Wake up. Somebody next to me is stirring. How you doing? For a couple of hours, I've been in labor. And in one case... The ambulance had to rescue us. No escape once it starts. Once real labor starts, no escape. That's the picture. Now, the point he's saying is, whatever you think you're going to have time to get straight and prevent and stop and change, once the Lord comes sudden, like travail coming. Now, I'm not certain that my theory that there are going to be a little bit of, oh, a few hours or a couple of days, I don't know, 
it may simply be that he's, all he's saying is that it will come as suddenly as the first onset of travail. That may be all Paul's saying. There may not be anything that de- develops out. But what we are being told, that it's like a thief in the night. You're not going to know ahead of time by any external evidence. No worldwide calamity is going to tell everybody, oops, better now repent because in a couple of weeks the Lord's coming. Nothing like that. Sudden. The whole point is, if the scriptures teach anything, it's be watchful. You don't know when he's coming. And it's going to be like this. People are going to be marrying and giving in marriage and going to parties because things are going to be relatively well with you. I do not expect, I cannot find it in my Bible to expect that when Jesus comes, he's going to be coming to a world that is so ruined and messed up that there's going to be no place of any pleasure, no place of any money, no food, no nothing. I don't see that. I see people grinding at the mill. They're having jobs in the factory. I see people out plowing in the field. They've got food growing. I see folks lying in the bed asleep. They have beds. They have houses. They have rest. They're not worried. They're not upset. They're saying peace and safety. He's going to come to a world that by and large is going to be at ease. And that's why they're not going to expect him. Sudden. That's the nature of his coming. Supernatural, bodily, invisible, and sudden. But in the minutes that remain, and as our main introductory statement for this series, I want us to consider, in the second place, the purpose of the Lord's coming. It's quite important that we understand why Jesus is coming. Some, to hear them teach, you would almost think that there is no ultimate reason for his coming except to satisfy the chart. Sometimes you just get the impression it's just an intellectual exercise to... See who's right in the last, and uh, it's just a fascinating study. Brethren, I trust that you don't appreciate preaching and teaching in the church just because it's a fascinating study. I hope that what you think is good teaching is not limited to intellectual exercise or something that turns your brain on. I hope you don't judge preaching and teaching that way. If you do, you're unbiblical in your judgment. It ought to be intelligent. It ought to be organized. But the ultimate goal of biblical preaching is to get the heart and the activity of the life changed. And conform to the way God thinks and God wills. Let's think of the purpose of Christ's coming. And the first statement, and I believe it's all I'll be able to have time to say today, is this. The Lord Jesus Christ is returning to the earth in the first place in order to bring to full glory himself and his people. In order to bring to full glory himself and And or with his people. In other words, the purpose of God in history is to establish his kingdom in the earth. What God's doing in this world's history is establishing his kingdom. We might say rebuilding or correcting or Presenting or establishing, but the goal of history is the kingdom of God coming on the earth as it is in heaven. The very model of our prayer taught by the Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, perfectly. All that's going on in history under the control of the hands of God is going on to produce the final result of the glorious kingdom of God among his creation. Perfect, finished product. The issue is the kingdom of God. 
The full glory of Christ the King with his people is the, the first purpose that I state for his coming. Now, in order to help you with that, I want you to think back with me in some Old Testament passages. In the Old Testament, the prophet was preaching with three kinds of perceptions. The prophet of the Old Testament had a visual perception, and that we spoke about briefly in Sunday school, in that he saw history in the future in a two-dimensional way, looking more on like the canopy that holds the stars as a big sheet and not perceiving that those stars were in varying distances from it not knowing that the reason that the sizes were different was because the distances were different or at least part of the reason thinking that this canopy was simply a flat thing with spots sprinkled on it and as the prophet of the Old Testament looked for the coming of the Messiah and the saving of Israel, he saw it as one big blanket of events coming at one time when Jesus arrived. And he didn't know what the name was going to be, but he saw Messiah coming and all the great events of Messiah's saving were coming all at once with him. He had a two-dimensional perspective. He didn't see the depth perception. He's looking at history down a dowel rod. And he sees all the events of history that if he could turn the dowel rod around sideways, he'd see them chronologically and developing. He looks at them down the end and he sees them all in one at the, on the end of the dowel rod. And all he thinks of when he prophesies these things, one event, Messiah comes, all this is going to happen. So you read in the Old Testament prophecies of the first coming of Christ and prophecies of the second coming of Christ as though they're the same thing. And when you go back and read them, you can find out the prophet, he's, as, as Peter tells us, they looked into or searched what manner of time the Spirit of God did signify when he spoke in them of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. They saw the sufferings. They saw the glories. But they couldn't see the time frame. They were interested in knowing it, but they couldn't see it. It was not revealed to them in that way. But in our perspective, God has turned the dowel rod around. We now see that the old age, or this age to the Old Testament prophet, became the age to come when Jesus came the first time. But in Paul's eschatology in the New Testament, this age still has an age to come. So there's an overlapping of ages. There's a this age in which we still function, and there's an age to come in which we've been translated, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are seated with Christ. Christ is our life. Our life is hid with God in Christ. But the day is coming when He appears that we shall appear with Him in glory. The world will then know what we really are. Right now, it doesn't look like I live in, in Christ in heaven. You tell somebody on the street that you're in God in heaven and seated with Christ in heaven and he'll think you're crazy. So don't tell a man on the street that. Don't cast pearl before swine. You've got to teach a lot of things before you can get to that kind of thing. But there'll come a day when it'll be clear to the universe what you are. The sons of God, it does not yet appear what we shall be. We know, though, that when he does appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the visual perspective of the Old Testament prophet, he's looking down this dowel rod in a two-dimensional scene, but he speaks of the latter days, Genesis 49, the latter days. It speaks of Shiloh coming in the latter days. 
Deuteronomy speaks of the latter days of God's covenant mercy to his people, of expiating the sins of Israel and the nations. Isaiah and Micah speak of the latter days which embrace the consummation of redemption. They look way off into a far distant latter period. And they understood that somehow when God's Messiah comes, it's going to conclude history. It's going to be the last of the, of the latter days or something far off in the distant future. That's how the Old Testament prophet looked at it. In Jeremiah 30 and 31, we hear of him saying, that time. And he's just spoken in chapter 30 of the latter days. And then he says, in the latter days, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a remnant. God's going to have a people. The days are coming. The days are coming. What days? The days come. He says it three times in Jeremiah 31. And finally, he pictures it as a new covenant. In the blood of Christ, where God's spirit indwells every believer... And everyone that's in the covenant knows God and needs not any externally to teach him because the Spirit of God teaches him. Where they're going to be holy. And then in verse 40 of Jeremiah 31, in those latter days, there's going to be a new holy city never to be plucked up and torn down again. He sees both the first coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit and the putting a new heart in his people and the day of Pentecost and the final building of Jerusalem which will never be torn down again. All in one coming called the latter days. Old Testament prophets had these observations. The time boundary was the latter days. Now what do we think of when we see the latter days? Well, we're in the latter days. We're in the last days. The scriptures speak over and over in the New Testament about in these last days. The, the Old Testament scriptures were written for our help upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God who in diverse times and different manners and times past spoke to the fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us in his son. There will come in the last days perilous times, Timothy. Therefore, from the kinds of men that will live in those last days, Timothy, you withdraw yourself. Those last days already were present. We are living in the last epoch of the world's history. We're living in the last period of history. There's going to be no dispensation after this one among men. There's going to come no fuller revelation of God's gospel later. There's going to come no additional truths of the Bible, of a different, better Bible. The Mormons are now waxing very bold. Now in their advertisements, they're no longer sneaking up with just little family things that warm your heart. They are declaring openly that there's a new and more glorious revelation from God in addition to the Bible, the Book of Mormon, which shows that Jesus has revealed himself to the Western white man. And if you don't understand Mormonism, you need to understand that at the root of some of its theology is a, is a white man's religion. You ought to study it before you get soft on it and before you become swayed by it. There Jesus is a blonde-headed, blue-eyed white man with western features. And he revealed himself that way to some South American Indians and that's produced the Book of Mormon. The problem is God has no future additional revelations to make that he didn't make in his son the first time and that he will not make in his son the second time. He came to bring to full glory himself 
and his people. He's coming to bring to full glory himself and his people. We read of the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2. In 1 John, we'll see him as he is. In 2 Thessalonians 1, he's coming to be glorified in the saints. In Romans chapter 8, the glory of the children of God at the revealing of the sons of God when Jesus returns from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to glorify himself in his saints. In the Old Testament, the kingdom was being prepared. In the Gospels, it's declared. In the book of Acts, it's proclaimed. In the, in the epistles, it's explained. In the revelation, it's consummated. Prepared, declared, proclaimed, explained, and consummated. What is consummated? The mighty power of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is coming to its full glory. He's returning to show the world who the king is. We know who it is, but the world doesn't. We worship Him. Having not seen Him, we love Him. They do not love Him. They walk by sight. We walk by faith. They persecute us. We endure as seeing Him who is invisible. But one day the world will see and they'll know this is the King who was given authority to give life to those whom God gave him. This is the king given authority over nature so that he could remove the curse from the world. Here's the one that healed diseases, restored missing arms, restored the sight to the blind who were born blind, not wounded and diseased, but born. He's the one that stopped the wind, that turned water to wine, that produced water out of the rock, that raised the dead. Here's the one that defied the laws of nature because he has authority over his creation. This is the one that has authority to exercise judgment. The prince of this world was judged when he came and will be judged when he comes again. His full glory as Jesus Christ the King will be revealed that day. I was comforted many times during the recent holiday season by how many hymns I heard uh, on the air that were a little more meaty than sometimes I'm accustomed to. And how many uh, times that I heard some of the better, great theological things sung by those who knew not what they were singing and knew not what they were hearing. Because the Lord Jesus deserves to be declared, God has appointed a day in Acts 17 in which he will judge the man of the world through the man he's appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's king. He's coming to glorify that kingship. He has authority to subdue his enemies. The Lord said, sit here at my foot, on my right hand till I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. Jesus must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. And the last one to go will be death. So when he returns and raises the dead, all his enemies will finally be seen gloriously under his majestic kingly feet. He's coming to show the world who he is. The first time he came in humility, meek, in humiliation, in weakness. The second time in power. Dear brethren, the descriptions of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation and other passages of the scripture do not depict a softy. He's not going to come on on the foal of an ass next time. He's not going to be seen as lowly next time. He's not going to be acquainted with grief next time. 
He's not going to be coming in with a, few, a small band of perhaps uh, differing degrees of knowledgeable disciples throwing palms and coats in the way and being ignored and repudiated by a larger group. He's not going to come just in the preaching of the gospel. He's not going to come just through his spirit on Pentecost. He's going to come in full radiant bodily glory sitting on a white stallion with his thighs bearing the words holy, holy, holy. Lord of lords and king of kings with a sword coming out of his mouth whereby he slays his enemies and all of them will be slain and the blood will raise up to the horses' bridles and all will then finally bow every knee to Jesus Christ and every tongue confess this is the Lord to the glory of God. That's why he's coming. He's going to remove any doubts and he's fully going to glorify himself with his people. Now, it's vital that we understand it. Some think perhaps this is redundant. Well, I hope that it's not redundant to you because it's going to happen. I hope you're not offended by the declaration in human frail words and language from sinful lungs of the glory that one day, if you're scared of what I said, is going to blow you away. You say, well, I'm a saint. I'm not supposed to be afraid of that day. Go ahead. Respond as you will. I tell you, when the Lord Jesus comes the next time, it's going to be in power and glory with angels spreading out throughout the world together, people good and bad. Every particle of dust from humanity is going to come out of the grave and stand before him and silence will rule the day and all will wait for him to speak. There will be no blasphemy that day. There will be cries for the rocks and the caves to fall on men. Some who hated his servants will dread that day when it comes and wish they had listened. Some who slept through preaching will be awake that day and wish they had been awake earlier. Some who don't want to think about it, some who don't want it preached in any sort of drama will understand real drama that day. The Lord Jesus is not going to sneak up and have a chat with his creation. He's not going to tiptoe through the proverbial tulips and have a dialogue. He's coming on the clouds with great glory and the power of the holy angels with him to do business forever with God's kingdom and to reveal himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Dear brethren, a glorious day it'll be. It's why he's coming. But finally, this coming to bring full glory to himself, I said also his people. The text we read in Colossians, we then shall also appear with him in glory. His glory is going to be shared with us. We will rule and reign with him. We have been given power, as the scriptures say, though I don't understand it, to judge angels. We will judge the world, we're told in 1 Corinthians. We're going to sit with Christ on thrones of judgment. The manifestation of the sons of God is going to concur with the manifestation of the Son of God. His glory is linked with ours. We'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. He's coming to be glorified in the saints in a way that I'm not able to expound or to understand. Someday, the whole world and the devils alike will look at your face and see the glory of Jesus Christ in a way that they can't see it now. All of your detractors and your persecutors 
will see the glory of Jesus Christ in you fully manifest one day. He's going to be glorified in his saints. He's going to be magnified in his saints. Dear brethren, we're not just going to stand back and behold his glory. We're going to partake of it. The sons of God, as sons of God, are going to be revealed. I'm going to cut it at this point and make application because it's time to make application. It's very important that you understand that all the trouble you're going through now for your faith will be vindicated in that hour. They don't understand what makes you tick now, do they? Even the polite ones among them feel a bit sorry for you. They would love to help you out of your dilemma of superstition, wouldn't they? You who make decisions that make no sense to those who live for this moment and for the things of this world, who give over a tenth of your gross income to a church, just because, and you like it, you love doing it, and you do it during a recession, and some of your jobs are uncertain and you keep giving to God the first fruits of your increase and you do it gladly because you would never rob God because you love Him. And they think you're nuts. You who waste a whole day every week doing nothing but worshiping and resting. When you could get out so much fun, maybe make an extra buck. There's so much that you're missing out on. You don't even sleep late that morning because there's things you want to do in the house of God. They feel sorry for you at best. You will be manifested one day as the sons of God. They'll see who you are. You'll be shown for what you are, and they'll understand. And their mouths will be stopped. It's very important that you gain great comfort from this. Now, what's going to happen when you're glorified with Christ? Well, here's one thing. That day, the justice of the misery and the terror that belongs to those that scoffed at you will be vindicated. They that have been living in their pleasures and mocking you will that day wish they could be in your place. Remember Haman and Mordecai? As Haman wants to know what you're going to do for the man you're pleased to bless... King, and King says, oh, I think you tell me what we ought to do for the man that we honor. And Haman describes, uh, writes out the, the ledger for what we ought to give to this honored man. He thinks he's the one that's going to be honored. And he describes what, what he deserves. And the king then tells him to go give all that glory and honor and pleasure and riches to Mordecai, his hated Jewish neighbor. And where did Haman end up? Well, remember the short-lived boasting of Haman to his friends and household? Oh, the king has put me in number one. The king's put the whole thing in my hands. I'm going to get rid of these bothersome, principled people living around, and I'm going to rule the world, and the king's on my side. Remember how? And as it appeared, the Jews were going to get wiped out by this wicked man, and he was going to be up here to prosper forever. That's the, But it didn't last long, did it? What's the end? The reverse is true. Those that were mocked now, those that suffered now, those that were ridiculed now, those that missed the pleasures of the world now, that didn't get to be accepted in the peer group now, they're going to be in the peer group of all peer groups. 
You teenagers, one of the hardest things that you ever have to deal with, and you younger children, is having to live for Jesus when nobody else wants to. Having to do things that are right just because the Lord Jesus said they're right, not because everybody thinks they're right. You know what your Bible says. You know what you've got to do. And you do it because even though it doesn't appear there'll be any rewards for you, it looks like you're actually missing out on the good times because of what you're giving up and doing for Christ's sake. You have to endure and wait for the day when it'll all be worth it. And when Jesus comes, then you will see, then the world will see, then those peers will see that you were the wise one. You did without it here. And you'll get it there. More than you could have ever accumulated here. You suffered here. You'll reign there. They rejoiced and frolicked here. They'll suffer there. The day of the glory of the sons of God will be the day of the just misery and terror of those who scoffed at us. When their music is silent, we begin to sing. And I tell you, if you are linking your heart and your soul and your time and your money and your pleasure to the music of this world, you're going to be stunned one day. And that is swallowed up and smoked out by the glorious praises of the sons of God. I trust that you will condition yourself to prefer the songs of Zion to the songs of this wretched and passing age. Second, one day the honor of Jesus Christ will be clear to all creation. The king of Iraq will bow at the feet of Jesus. The President of the United States will bow at the feet of Jesus. The Lord Jesus will receive the whole glory that he deserves and that he's not getting today. But he one day will when he comes. And then last, when Jesus is glorified in his saints, it will reveal finally that there is profit in serving God. Job asked the question, or in Job there's the question asked in chapter 21, what profit is there in serving God? You can well understand the question from Job or someone observing Job. What profit is there in serving God? Surely the psalmist says, I've cleansed my hands in vain. I've given up all these things. What's it got me? Brethren, the devil continues to try to speak that to you. Almost weekly, some of you hear that, and you wonder, should I go back to church again? What's in it for me? Some of you are still so carnally minded that if you don't feel real happy after a worship service, you actually contemplate not coming back that night. Because the end of all things for you is feeling good. You didn't even think in terms of giving glory to God no matter how you felt. One of the sobering things to do is read some biographies of dying saints. And the accounts of their praises to God in their bodily weakness, in their humility, in their brokenness, how that they glorified and worshipped and praised God. And some of you can't do it in your macho 23-year-old strong man's body. You're not so strong if you can't praise God. But at the last day there will be proven profit in serving Christ. 
You will not be a madman who waited on God, who trusted in God, and who lived for God. No one that day will accuse you. There will be holy envy in the heart of all those that thought what you did was insane. Jesus is going to manifest his own glory and his people's glory all at once, suddenly, supernaturally, in visible form, and all eyes are going to see him, and he's going to put right the vindication of the glory of his own kingly name. I ask you this. What is your particular personal interest in that day? Brethren, it really could be this week. Don't bank on some eschatology that says you don't have to worry about it too quickly because certain other things have to develop first. Be careful about that. Do you care? Are you interested? Does it just fly past your brain because you can't get your eyes and mind off some other frolics you plan to do this week? Are you aware that the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven is going to appear soon and suddenly and you better be prepared? Are you caring about it? Does it stir you? Does it frighten you? Does it make you think about your sins and want to get rid of them now? It ought to. Is it something that you long for? And anticipate as the answer to all your life's dreams and wishes and goals. Oh, dear brother, dear sister, dear friend. If there's anything in your heart and experience that you hope the Lord will let you have before he comes, you've got your priorities misplaced. I don't care how important it is. Marriage pales into insignificance compared to the glorious revealing of the sons of God. Having a child compared to Christ's coming is nothing. It's legitimate. It's wonderful. But compared to that, it's nothing. Having another day of health is nothing compared to Jesus' coming. You need to discipline your heart to long for that above all your chief longings. You need to be able to say, come, even so, come, Lord Jesus, and not wait for great persecution to drive you to it. You need to discipline your mind to understand that's the day to which we're headed. That's the day to which history is headed. Dear friends, you're all going to meet on that day. What we pastors don't deal with in your conscience is between now and then the Lord Jesus will. What you don't attend to before then, He will then. All of history is headed for that hour. Are you? Is that the course and direction of your thinking in your life? To prepare yourself for the day when your Savior will be honored and you can be like Him. And to do everything now that you can by God's grace to live in the light of that. And to live like that as much as you can. Is that you? If it's not, I ask you. What is the evidence that you have to offer that you're a Christian? Where's the change that's supposed to have taken place when you were saved? Where's the evidence of true repentance and putting the kingdom of God first? What have you forsaken for Christ? Where's the evidence? You may be a Christian, though, who needs to stir by way of your memory and need to cultivate your longings for Christ's coming and needs to do some straightening up and tidying up and adjusting and some repenting and some serious dealings with your priorities and your values and the time you're spending and the money you're spending and to organize it under the light of the coming of the day of Jesus Christ so that you can stand there without being embarrassed. May God give us grace to comprehend what's happening, where history is going, 
what's going to happen and what our place is going to be that day. And may not a one of you go out of this place today unprepared to meet Jesus. I'm cognizant when I analyze the Bible as best I can that it's a very real possibility I'll never preach to you again. The Lord Jesus could come or you could die or I could die. Don't be such a fool as to say the Lord delays the time of his coming. There's a parable about that of a foolish and unfaithful servant. It's to that man the Lord comes like a thief. It's to that person to whom God's son returns surprisingly. Don't let that day overtake you as a thief. Get it ready today and keep it ready today. Guard your heart. The Lord is near. Let us bow together. Our Father, we know that as soon as we leave, as soon as the sermon is finished and the amen is prayed, that our hearts will all automatically begin to drift. Legitimate and illegitimate things will begin to challenge us for the preeminence that Christ ought to hold in our thoughts. We ask you that you would give us grace to let the, the day of his glorious appearing discipline our minds and change our lives. Deal with us in truth. May everyone who sits here this morning that is able to understand words not be able to hear these and go out unmoved. Lord, do work in our hearts. Every one of us need a work done in our hearts. Quicken the saints and their love for that day and turn some poor unconverted sinner to reality. And deliver the mind and the heart from the delusion that life will go on and on as it is. Oh Lord, frighten us with the realities of the day of judgment and wrath. And comfort us in the blood of your Son regarding the day of our blessed hope. Do hear us, our Father, and do that which we cannot do. For the sake of your Son, whom we ask... Come, Lord Jesus. For all of this we ask in the name of our King and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.